Hey y'all, I'm author Austin Cleon, and you're listening to the Inspiration Place podcast with Miriam Schulman. This episode is sponsored by the Six Figure Artist, an art business coaching division of the Inspiration Place. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hello, this is your host, artist Miriam Shulman, and you're listening to episode number 38 of the Inspiration Place podcast. I am so thrilled that you're here. Today, we're talking about keeping the meaning in your art and your life. So in this episode, you'll discover why you should make a to-draw list, why airplane mode can be a way of life, and why you do not need to have an extraordinary life to make extraordinary work. Plus, I have a feeling you're going to have a lot of gems you're going to pick up along the way. Today's guest is the New York Times bestselling author of Steal Like an Artist, Show Your Work, and the Steal Like an Artist Journal, a notebook for creative kleptomaniacs. His work has been translated into over 20 languages and featured on NPR's Morning Edition, PBS NewsHour, and in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. Known as an artist who writes, or an author who draws, and now hot off the presses is his latest addition to the series, Keep Going, 10 Ways to Stay Creative in Good Times and Bad. Please welcome to the Inspiration Place, Austin Cleon. Hello, Austin, and welcome to the show. Hi, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm so thrilled you're here. I absolutely absolutely loved this book. I basically swallowed it in a single plane ride. You know, I did read your first book, Steal Like an Artist, and I don't know if I just don't remember correctly, but the writing in here is so beautiful. It's not just a fun read, but there's just a lot to unpack. And I'm really grateful that you're taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you for saying that. Thank you for having me. I'm going to assume that our listeners have not gotten your book yet. So you actually start off talking about the movie Groundhog Day, which I really love because I've been actually, even before picking up this book, that was something that I've been saying a lot with the news. It just felt every day was like Groundhog Day. I'd wake up, oh, He's still president? (laughs) (laughs) I think that the creative life is way more repetitive than people might want to suspect or admit. You know, basically, when I get up every day, it's a blank page. Yeah. You know, and I sort of sit down at my desk and I look at that blank page and I think to myself, you know, didn't I just do this yesterday? Yeah. What I love about the movie Groundhog Day, which for your listeners who haven't seen that movie. And if you haven't, where have you been? That movie's been out a long time. It is 25 years old now. So it's Bill Murray plays a weatherman who wakes up and he relives the same day over and over. He sort of gets stuck in a time loop. And in the beginning of the movie, he, you know, sort of tries to trick the system. He does all sorts of like basically life hacks. You know, he's like yeah. trying to cheat and get ahead in life. And then and then he goes through this moment of despair when he realizes that he's going to live this 
day over and over again. And so he like tries to commit suicide many, many different times, that kind of thing. And finally he comes around to the fact that this is sort of a blessing in disguise that he can use these days in a way that not only makes himself better, but his world better. So, you know, he takes up these hobbies, he starts playing the piano, he starts ice sculpting, you know, he starts doing good works around the small town. It's such a great modern parable for us, and particularly those of us who do creative work, because, you know, no matter what level you're at with your work, whether you're just starting out or whether you just won an Oscar or a Pulitzer or whatever, the question always remains, and that is, what next? Yeah. What are you going to do next? Yeah. And I think the people who get that figured out the best are the artists and creative people who have some sort of daily practice. They basically don't worry about what happened yesterday. They don't worry about what's happening tomorrow. They're worried about the day and what they can do with it. And so whether they're facing success or failure, they sit down every day and they do their work. And I think that's the great lesson that we can learn from Groundhog Day is that every day is a gift and it's how we fill it that gives us our meaning. I do like the way you address that in the book about how routines can help give shape to our days, which actually creates more freedom. And yet, what was I found very refreshing is that you also said that, well, yeah, but it, we don't always do it that way. They're aspirational, you know? Yes, I that mean, was the way you put it, exactly. Yeah, every schedule is aspirational. And that's the real thing that I think that a schedule is like, I think Andy Dillard called it a net for catching days. Mm. It's the way that you sort of catch the day, you catch it in the net of your schedule. It's a way to like kind of harness the power of the day. And the really great thing about having a routine is that then when you actually break the routine, it makes it all the much more sweeter. Like you get more juice out of, you know, it's sort of like uh, playing hooky isn't as fun as if you never go to school in the first place, mm. you know, or, you know, there's something about having a routine and then breaking it and doing something delicious or, you know, something fun, <laughs> you know, that kind of makes it really good when you break it. If you look at the people who have managed to have long careers over time, they usually figure out some way of having a daily routine. So they just sort of get to work and and they maximize their time doing what they want to do. Yeah. And it's not about being more productive necessarily. It's just making sure the right things end up getting done. You know, an artist like Chuck Close says that you don't wait for inspiration to strike and then sit down to work. It's that when you sit down to work, then you invite inspiration to strike. So many of my students ask me how to get inspired. And the thing is, inspiration is a feeling. This is not necessarily, I think, something you talk about in the book, but I feel we might, we might as well talk about it. Inspiration is a feeling, and a feeling is something you can generate mm. with how you're thinking by the thoughts you have in your, your mind. So you actually have control over your thoughts because nobody else thinks in your mind but you. So that's always something that you can generate for yourself. It's always available to you. Yeah, and I think that feelings are sort of based on, we have muscle memory, you know, that I think that's what's so powerful about sitting down to draw is that 
there's something about if you sit down and just start drawing before you have an idea, there's something about moving the ink across the page that you will get an idea. I've always loved watching Ralph Steadman draw because the way he starts is he gets his, his pen in the big ink and then he splatters it on the page, you know, and then he looks at the ink blot and says, Hmm, what does that look like? And then he keeps drawing and he eventually gets to this crazy place he talks about how, you know, getting that first markdown on the page is really the, the first step because to start from scratch is the hardest thing. Once you have something on the page, then you can kind of do something with it. So tell us about your creative process for this book from when it germinated to how, how you approached it. Well, I think the book started a couple of years ago. I was sort of burnt out and didn't really know if I wanted to write anymore. didn't really know if I wanted to do any more books. Making art in the face of everything that was going on just felt sort of meaningless to me. But a couple of things really got me jump-started again with my work. One was that I started a good old-fashioned diary. So I was kind of missing that daily... You know, I worked a lot, but I didn't have necessarily like a really strict daily practice. So I started writing in my diary in the morning. You know, I do like three to 10 pages, just depending on how things go. And there was something about that kind of private space in my notebook that a lot of good stuff and bad stuff, you know, started to come out. As my audience has gotten bigger, it's been important for me to have a more private space to Mm. work in. Mm. So like the diary fulfills that space. And when I say diary, it also, like, it sort of looks like a sketchbook and a collage. Like an art journal? Yeah, it's a lot of different stuff. I mean, it's like, it's it's plain old handwriting, but then it also is like comics I'll make of my kids, and then I'll also do a bunch of collage work in them. So they're pretty visual, but that just depends on my mood or the day. And so doing that diary was really important. A lot of the book actually started in the diary. That was my private daily practice. And then as far as a public daily practice went, I went back to daily blogging again. I went back to posting something on my blog every day. And I found that those two things together, private outlet and the public outlet in like a daily situation or a daily routine, that sort of jump-started everything for me for the book. And the book started coming pretty quickly after that happened. So that was like the primary... And what I like to do before I write books is I like to give a talk. I like to, there's something about knowing that you're going to be on stage and you're going to have to present whole new material that, you know, you have a deadline and the challenge is, is put down. And so I gave a talk in San Francisco that was called How to Keep Going. Oh, interesting. When you assigned yourself this challenge to do the talk, was that with the idea in mind that you were moving forward towards a new book project? The folks at Backerkit, they ran this conference called Bond. They had asked me if I would do a talk for them. And I said, yes, I will do a talk for you, but you have to put me on last. Because I knew what I was working on was like sort of, you know, a last talk of the day. So you could write it while the first people were going? No, 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 no. (laughs) 
Because that would be me in high school doing my homework in homeroom. <laughs> no, it's um, for a closer. You know, I knew it was a closer talk. Got it. Okay, so it's a different type of talk to, yeah. to be the closing talk rather than the, the keynote kickoff. I knew that what I was writing was about like, okay show's over, go home and and do work. Got it. Okay. So when they agreed to that, then the talk, uh, How to Keep Going, came pretty quickly. And the talk, How to Keep Going, is actually, you know, structure-wise, is pretty similar to the book. Actually, it might be identical to the book, but the book is sort of like a really fleshed out, longer and illustrated version of the talk, basically. So after I gave that talk, you know, I sold the book to my publisher and with the talk as a kind of, you know, as they the can watch the talk. Yeah, they can watch the talk. That's something that I actually recommend to other authors and wannabe writers is to think about, you know, how can you do things that are not books first? You know, how can you get out in the world and spread your message without trying to sell a book first? Right. And just to circle back to something else you said that I think would relate more to the artists who follow me is that I do also find that I'm much more motivated to paint and create art when I know it is for something. Otherwise, I go into this mm. existential crisis. So you know, once I have that art fair on the calendar or whatever it is, so the point isn't necessarily the art fair to sell your art, although, of course, we want to make money and all that. but it gives more of a, another reason to show up and do the work when I know I have an end in mind. That's cool. Yeah. And I know this is not just true of me. This is true of many artists that they like to have an exhibit to work for. I know my daughter who's a musician, she likes to have a recital to work for. So it's different to go right. into the practice room and practicing when you have, what's this all, what is this all for and what does this all mean? Yeah. It's nice to know the context of where your work is going to go. It's his own um, constraint. And it's nice to have deadlines. Yes. Now, you also talk about a good tip, which is to have a to-draw list. Can you share with us what that is? Yeah. So I'm a big list maker. I love lists. And I realized that some of my favorite cartoonists in particular, and a few artists I I read about actually keep to-draw lists. So when they're not in the studio, they will make a list of things that they know they're going to draw when they get to the studio. And so someone like David Shrigley will have like 50 things he's going to draw when he goes into the studio. And so he just makes a big list and then he gets to the studio and he draws them all. And like, that's the work. And I think there's something really helpful about knowing what you're going to work on when you show up to your workspace so you don't have to like kind of sit around and wonder what to get started on. Right. Do you ever have the problem you have too many ideas though? Like there's too many things to pick? That comes up in Q&A a lot. Yeah. Like, well, I have all these ideas. Right. I hear I, that from people yeah, too. I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, I have the opposite problem. Like I don't have any ideas and I'm looking for one to work on. So I'm like, good for you to have that problem, I guess. But... <laughs> Usually when I hear that, all I hear is that I haven't prioritized my idea. Like, you know, I haven't looked at my list and said, oh, well, here's the best one. And you haven't picked one and just right. done it. You know, I mean, I personally don't understand the paralytic of like having a bunch of ideas and not knowing which one to work on. Like for me, there's usually if I look at a list of ideas, there's an obvious choice. There's an obvious choice to yeah. go with. And yeah. I wonder if people just need to like, 
I also think you just pick one. Right. I think it's also they have the anxiety of decision making. Mm-hmm. What if they make the wrong choice? Yeah, I think a lot of the problems of the artists do sort of come down to fear. Yes. And anxiety and all that. But I, I always love that when people are like, I have all these ideas and I don't know which one to work on. I'm like, well, give me a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, they're so good. Or let me look at them. I'll tell you which ones are bad. <laughs> that's a good one by the way if you're enjoying these strategies my specialty is coaching other artists to take their talent and create a thriving business out of it with practical strategies that go beyond the inspiration shared on this podcast if you want to profit from your passion or want a clear strategy to ramp up your existing creative business but you're spinning and don't know what to do next I can help you. To schedule a free discovery call, all you have to do is sign up at shulmanart.com forward slash biz. That's shulmanart.com forward slash B-I-Z. All right. I also want to talk about this concept you have, why airplane mode can be a way of life. So my hero, when it comes to airplane mode, is this artist named Nina Kachadorian. And one of her art projects is called Seat Assignment. And what she does is she takes these long plane rides and she doesn't pack anything special. She just packs like she's going on a trip. And when she gets on the plane, the game is to make art out of whatever's on the plane and whatever she packed. So she'll do things like she'll take in-flight magazines and sprinkle salt on them to like make ghosts or she'll use the overhead light to make them glare and she'll make these ghost images and then she'll fold up her sweater into like gorilla faces and take pictures of them with her phone and she'll go into the bathroom on the airplane and use the toilet seat covers and like the toilet paper to do these she'll remake old flemish paintings basically (laughs) she'll take pictures of herself one of those neck yeah those like dutch those, neck i don't forget what they're called exactly actually i like probably those, never knew what it was called those old dutch paintings with the big collars right so what she's figured out is a way to use her smartphone to actually make art instead of just distract herself so now whenever i'm on a plane i can't help but think about all the work i could be doing on the plane but also one of the things you realize when you read about nina's work is that you know, airplane mode doesn't have to just be on the airplane. You know, the minute you turn off the connectivity of your phone, suddenly it can become more of a tool for you instead of a distraction. And I think that's sort of the problem that a lot of artists have right now is that our tools have never been able to distract us from our work the way that they do now. I also like how in the book you pointed out this dance that us creatives do where you want to be connected to people in order to make art, but you also have to disconnect in order to do that deep work that you need to do. And especially, of course, in in today's modern age where that has even another layer of meaning of disconnection. It used to just mean we went into our studio. Now it's like, well, we can't bring our phone into the studio yeah because <laughs> how many likes did you get on instagram for that last work in progress picture right that's really the tension it's between you know you know you need to be connected in order to get ideas and to share your work and to be a part of whatever scene or seniors you're part of 
That's what Brian Eno calls it. He calls it genius, not genius. That's the collective form of genius, which is your associations and your crew and all that stuff. But you also need to have the time to actually work. And that has to be a connected time where you sort of take everything you've ingested and you take it into your space and you do something with it. And a lot of the time, I find this a lot when I'm working in my diary, is that you don't really even know what's in your head until you start emptying it out yeah. in a private space. Right. Do you still do your diary work in the just in the morning or do you do it in the evening also? I do it in the morning because I like the, I keep a pocket notebook all day and I take notes in that. I like to write in the morning because I like the filter of sleep. I like to let some time pass in between the day. I feel like it filters out what was really memorable and worth writing about and what really wasn't, like what didn't stick around. I feel that way about movies, actually. I feel like if I wake up in the morning, I'm still thinking about the movie. It was probably good. Mm. I kind of feel that way about my day, too. Like whatever I'm still thinking about or seems worth writing about, like that's, that's probably worthwhile. Sleep is such a powerful thing. I love when I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll know exactly how to solve a problem. I'm not even talking about necessarily art, but you know, like a, a difficulty I'm having with a person, and I know exactly how I'm going to solve it. Or being able to tap into that is so powerful. I think sleeping and napping—it's kind of this magical, easy tool for artists. You yeah. know, it's it's amazing how much clearer you feel after a good night's rest and a good nap too can give you get you in that sort of dreamy state that we often like to be in when we work. I think about all the art students I knew in college who would like stay up all night, you know, work on their projects and stuff and, and how awful that seemed to me. I do like writing because it takes so much time. It's something that you can't just dash things off. You have to go through several revisions. You have to kind of use time as an editor to see what's worth keeping and what's worth taking out. And I think artists have to do that too. Oh, absolutely. So I will say to my students, you have to let your painting marinate sometimes. Yeah. You have to let it sit. And just look at it with fresh eyes. Yeah. By the way, did you read the book Rest, Alex Pang? I didn't. I think you would like that based on the other books that you mentioned that you have read. And there was one that you had mentioned was like the Crazy Habits book. I forget what it's called. Probably daily rituals. The Dr. Seuss Zoo of people's, of artists and writers' habits. Right. So there's a book called Daily Rituals, and it's by Mason Curry. That's it. It documents daily routines of famous writers and artists and thinkers. You know, the thing I take from that book is that there is no magic. People usually want some sort of magic routine that you can hand to them and say, hey, it works for you. And that's just not true. It's not that you can't just borrow someone's routine wholesale because a routine is, is about where people are in their lives. You know, people who have kids versus don't have kids, people who are old versus people who are young, people who have jobs, people who don't have jobs. You know, there's so many different fa- people who are morning people versus people who are evening people. You know, there's, yeah. there's all these different factors that go into your routine and it doesn't really matter what the routine is. It's just that you sort of have it. Yeah. And one thing that I this year I made as one of my goals, I have a really great morning routine, but my evening routine sucked. 
So it's like, what's the point of having this perfect morning routine and this great day? And if you're going to lie on the couch and get depressed watching CNN every night, <laughs> so, <laughs> which brings yeah. me actually to another point in your book, which I really enjoyed. So we're talking about disconnecting. Mm-hmm. And when you wake up in the morning, what you're talking about is you have this freshness when you wake up. So you talk about n- not checking the news. Do you want yes. to add to that? Well, I think it's just normal to try to wake up with your phone. It's just yeah. like you kind of switch it on and it glows. You know, it might be dark when you get up, you know, but I just think that the longer you can go in the morning without looking at your phone, I think the better off the morning is because I think when you turn your phone on, you're actually inviting problems into your life right away. Right. (laughs) Actually, you know, when your phone's still off from the night, you don't know what bad news is waiting on you. Yeah. And so whether the news is the CNN news alert, the Facebook news feed, or your mother. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not, you don't need to deal with it as soon as you wake up. Yes. 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 Take a half hour, take an hour, take two hours, take as long as you can. You know, some people have to check their phones for work and stuff like that, but do what you can to kind of stay away from too much phone usage in the morning and see if you can, you know, a lot of people have trouble finding time for their stuff. And I think that early mornings, if you can train yourself, you know, you can get a lot done in a half an hour or an hour before you go off to work, depending on what what you do. But even just to have the t- 15 minutes after you wake up and not to be totally distraught by the world. <laughs> yeah. It's a powerful thing. I actually, you just gave me an idea. So like back in November, I have an iPhone when the iPhone released that screen time. So I was horrified when I found out that I had been spending four hours. Like what? What? I I don't even play two dots. How could that be? So I put settings on that my phone would turn off every night at 10 o'clock. But now I'm just now I'm realizing I should not let it turn on until a certain time. Like give myself a really narrow window. And by the way, it's not four hours anymore. I've got it down to two. Got it down to two. That's pretty good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how how quick you go through like an hour on your oh phone. Oh my gosh, yes. Especially if you're traveling and you're just like in a cab or it's been crazy to me to watch how quick that hour I, I have like an hour set on my social media and it just goes like nothing. Yeah, yeah. I have fifteen minutes on Instagram. Yeah. Do you want to ignore the limit today? <laughs> you know, you get that little sure. pop up. Do you want to ignore it? Yeah. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Always. Uh, It's hard. Yeah. uh, You do also in the book to point out about ignoring the numbers. That was another, I mean, there's really a lot of gems in here. We could probably turn this into a week podcast. One thing I promised we'd talk about though, is why you do not need to have an extraordinary life to make extraordinary work. We all like to think that if we could just change our circumstances, that the really great work would follow, you know, and the cartoon version of that is if I could just move to Paris, you know, and have a residency in some beautiful studio and buy a beret and run around with a bunch of misfits, stay up drinking wine, then the really great work would come. And, you know, we all know that that's sort of wishful thinking, 
you know, a lot of the artists that really inspire me are not people that necessarily live extraordinary lives. It's just that they have an extraordinary knack for paying attention to their everyday lives. And so one of my favorite artists is this lady named Karita Kent, and she was a nun. And she saw a show of Andy Warhol's and she got into screen printing. And what she would do is she'd go around Los Angeles and she'd take pictures of billboards and signs and advertisements. And she would pull out the religious messages in a lot of this advertisement. She'd take the General Mills logo, which is big G, and it says the G stands for goodness. And she would make a screen print that made that seem like it was talking about the big G, God. And she would do a lot of work like that. And, you know, I think the task of the religious believer is to sort of find the God in everything. And Karita found it in advertising, of all things. <laughs> but her deal was that she didn't like to call what she did art. She liked to call it the uncommon. What she felt that she did is she took the common and she made it uncommon. So what she did is she took ordinary life and she paid extra attention to it. And that's how she found the extraordinary. And I think that that's really the task of the artist is to pay extra close attention to things that sort of resonate with you or you think that people have overlooked or even things that people look out every day to try to make people see that with fresh eyes. So one thing that I like to talk about is, for example, recently I went with a friend to New York Botanical Gardens. They have the orchid show right, right now. And they're asking me, oh, are you going to paint this? And the truth is, I says, well, everybody already knows that orchids are beautiful. My right. job is to show them how something they wouldn't normally think is beautiful is also beautiful. Right, exactly. And teach them how to see. Every good art show you've ever gone to, you come out of the gallery or the space and you're seeing the way the artist sees. Like anytime I go to like a David Hockney show, you come out and you see the world like David Hockney. That's art that fires on all cylinders. Is that art that simply changes the way you look at the world. Yes. You know? yes. And if you think of the, you know, the history of 20th century art, I mean, a lot of those people were, they just showed us how to look at our world in a new way. You know, someone looks at us Campbell's soup can long enough and yes. all of a sudden we're looking at Campbell's soup cans. You also talk in your book about, art monsters. First of all, let's define an art monster. I think an art monster is someone who, in the pursuit of their art, loses their humanity, mm -hmm. that does things that a good, decent human being shouldn't. Yes. Basically, and it's directly kind of tied to the mythos of their art or whatever. I wanted to actually share something that I've been grappling with personally with my synagogue. So there is a, a famous rabbi, Shlomo Karlbach, who is responsible for a lot of the melodies that we sing in our synagogue. And with the whole Me Too movement, it's come out. This is something, it's not new news. It's just something people hadn't talked about, that he was a serial child molester of girls and women. He basically abused that power. So the question is, do we keep singing that music? It's a great question. And I think it's a question that everyone has to answer for themselves. I don't think it's a question that we can all agree on. How you answer the question is part of your work. 
I don't know. You know, mm. you, that's, that's part of the work. My personal perspective on it is that we have to understand that that's a particularly hideous charge. Yeah. But we have to sort of understand too that people who aren't so beautiful in their ordinary lives are capable of making things that are beautiful and things that are useful or helpful to us. And we just have to be able to grapple with that knowledge because the sort of the contemporary moment right now is that how could anyone who was an art monster make anything worth grappling with? And to anyone who says that, it's sort of like, well, you really haven't paid much attention to the thousands of years of art history that we have. Because I mean, these people were not, I mean, some of these people were not people you'd want to have over for dinner, you know, or or leave around your, your loved ones. The thing for me is that we don't celebrate the monstrousness of art monsters. We don't condone it. We don't give it a pass. And we certainly don't believe that it's a prerequisite for good work. And we're not talking about the extreme, like the example I just brought up, and I apologize for putting you on the spot with such an example. I think it's also more the benign, like people who... It's more that they're maybe they're abusing alcohol because that's their image of Hemingway. He gets drunk yeah, or whatever. It's more yeah. that and maybe not quite as monstrous, but not so good either. I mean, we're all flawed. We're all flawed people. I think it comes down to do you believe you could be better in your art than you are in your everyday life? Because I think we're tilting towards this edge where we want people to be perfect and no one's perfect yeah that if you we can't be better in our art than we are in our lives then what is the purpose of art Mm. would be my question i'm not giving anyone a pass i'm just saying that we have to start from a point that we know that not so great people can make great art but one thing you did say which i absolutely loved is that we don't necessarily need more great art in the world. We need better human beings. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we need, if your art, I would argue that if your art is destroying your life or it's destroying the lives of people around you, I don't really think it's worth making. I just don't. Yeah. Because I really do. I believe that the world needs better human beings. It needs healthier happier human beings who are contributing rather than more artists. Psychologist Adam Phillips writes beautifully about how a lot of people come to art because they think it will heal them when they would have been better off, you know, going to therapy or Mm. or doing something else. Mm. I mean, I do think that people look to art as some sort of magical cure and i i don't i think sometimes it's it's a tough life the creative life is a is a rough one you might be better off teaching you might be better off being an accountant you might be better off doing all sorts of things you know you might be a happier person the message i want my audience to have is just to worry and i'm quoting i'm quoting austin right now (laughs) you know i had the time to write down all these quotes worry less about being a great artist and worry more about being a good human being who makes art. Yep. I love that. All right. So we're going to wrap up. 
You can get Austin's book, Keep Going. I've included a link to his book in the show notes where you can find it, shulmanart.com forward slash 38. And to see all the books that I'm reading and recommending, you can take a peek at that, shulmanart.com forward slash book club. Other books like the one I mentioned earlier, Rest, or what was that habits book again, Austin? Daily Rituals. Daily Rituals. I haven't cracked the spine yet, but I did get it. All right, Austin, do you have any last words for my listeners before we call this podcast complete? I would say go easier on yourself. I think every creative person I meet these days just has way, way too high expectations. And I think that go easy on yourself, take a lot of walks and get a good night's rest and keep going. I love that. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Austin. Really appreciate you being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great questions. All right, guys. Thanks so much also for you being here with me today. If you liked this episode, you will also like next week when I'm chatting with Melissa Dinwiddie, author and creativity coach about playing in the creative sandbox. And if you love this episode, please pass the love and tell a friend. And if you're feeling extra loving, I'd be grateful for a positive review over on iTunes. I bet Austin would like a review on Amazon as well. You can go over there and read mine before you leave your review. And by the way, if you drop your Instagram handle into the iTunes review, I'll be sure to give you a shout out over on my Insta stories. All right, I'll see you same time, same place next week. Make it a great one. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Art, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course, on shulmanart.com. Once again, this episode was sponsored by The Six Figure Artist. If you're interested in hearing how you can earn more for your passion with concrete marketing and business strategies that work, head on over to shulmanart.com forward slash biz. That's shulmanart.com forward slash B-I-Z.